Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what are you doing to prepare for the war with the shadows? I have laundered my towel. Uh, I'm going to plug in a nightlight, because as my son insists, the uh, the nightlight is the only thing that will protect him against the uh, scary shadows at night. That that's that's fair. That's legit. Of course, uh, for the record, my son is also a chaos goblin who <laughs> routinely gets up in the middle of the night, uh, telling me things like the star projector that we put in his room is talking to him, and uh, <laughs> the pile of clothes in the corner has elephants in it, and other completely m- mad four-year-old nonsense. So. Maybe maybe the pile of clothes is like the is like the laundry monks in that one forgettable episode. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Four year olds are they're a thing, man. <laughs> let me tell you, it's like that's that's like the age where the brain is doing some real funky developmental things. Dude, yeah, you ever seen those chemistry videos where they pour stuff together and like all of a sudden there's like an explosion of phloem. It just like shoots up (laughs) and the chemistry professor who's done this like 300 times and you think he'd know better, like has to dive out of the way. (laughs) That's what it's like being a parent to a four-year-old. Like everybody warns you, uh, but you, you just don't get out of way in time and you end up like collateral damage as your four-year-old's brain just explodes everywhere. And all of a sudden they're sassing back at you and you know, you're you're just sort of sitting there exhausted while he's tromping around. God damn! And you're just like, well, gonna have to just let that go because there's nothing I can do to stop that now. <laughs> uh, anyway, tonight on our parenting podcast, <laughs> what a podcast. great start to our season three. What a great <laughs> start to season three. Jude's parenting tips or how to teach your how to teach your children to casually swear. <laughs> if i want zathras to leave that in or have that as an outtake <sighs> all right um so let's talk about babylon 5 a show that this <laughs> podcast is nominally about um, <laughs> nominally is a good word for it <laughs> i mean most of our coverage is about that show we just it have starts a lot of there tangents. like <laughs> it we're starts s- there <laughs> <laughs> We're still like a plurality Babylon 5 podcast. We're starting out real good tonight. <laughs> Words are hard. Yeah, we're starting out at like punchy level seven, which just bodes well for where this is going. It's been a long week. It's I mean, Tuesday. It's been, a, it's been a long pandemic. We're at a year God. now. Good God. So tonight, we are starting off our Season 3 coverage with the first two episodes of Season 3. Those are Matters of Honor and Convictions. We're going to start off with Matters of Honor, which is Episode 1, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Kevin G. Kremen. 
We start off our season with Sheridan visiting Caution the Garden, trying to thank the Vorlon for saving his life there a few weeks ago. Caution admits that being seen by so many people at once was a strain on him. Big mood, buddy. And he has been resting. Sheridan tries to prod about what he saw and what everyone else saw, but Kosh provides no answer. Shock. We then cut to a ship fleeing a planet with a passenger pleading to escape. The Drazi pilot launches an escape craft, and we get to uh, a cut of the pilot of the small fighter, a human, a babe in fact, who jumps away to B5. <laughs> The pilot of the ship is brought into the new med lab set, unconscious. As Franklin turns away to, I don't know, summon another doctor because he's too busy, the body disappears. Too incompetent, I believe is what you meant to say there. (laughs) Um, On the Zocalo, Morden meets with Londo, who now has a new view on the relationship he has with this John Travolta fuckwad. With the war with the Narn over, he believes that he doesn't need Morden's help anymore. Morden presses him a little to continue, but Londo insists that it is time for Morden to go away. Morden asks for one little piece of business later before their relationship is resolved. Babylon 5 now has a new visitor of the week, a David Indawi, and he's here from Earth's Special Intelligence Division to question the command staff and the ambassadors about the ship from Keffer's gun cam. Sheridan, Ivanova, and Delenn lie and say they do not recognize it. Earth Force is trying to get more information on the Shadow Ship, but they have no clue, and it is freaking them out. Sheridan asks Delenn if this is a Shadow Ship, and Delenn confirms his suspicion. When Sheridan questions her about the lie she told, she says that, well, she had never seen one before now. (laughs) Good loophole there, buddy. Some horseshit right there. She says that once the Shadows target you, they never stop or give up, and their ships are nearly invincible. Indawi visits Londo next and shows him the shadow ship. Londo flashes to a vision of him watching a shadow invasion force in a dream. Londo is shaken by this clearly, and Indawi just shrugs it off and thanks him for his time. As you do when somebody, like, spouts their, you know, invasion fever dream at you. Yeah. I saw thousands of ships, like they were blotting out the sun. And, this, and David Indawi is just there just like... Okay, buddy. I'm just here to, like, take notes. <laughs> Honestly, that got... The, we'll get to the actor later, but he's he's a very good, like, straight man in this episode. Yeah. Lanier brings Delenn to an alien bar to meet a contact, the pilot who had escaped Medlab. The stranger introduces himself as Marcus. Lanier returns his brooch, and we learn a little bit about the brooch, that it is made from human Bari blood. Marcus explains he's here for Delenn's help and suggests they talk in private. As they leave, they are accosted by some goons, and Marcus draws a dorky CGI expanding bow staff and kicks ass. I I have to immediately object to your dorky assertion here. Uh, his bow staff is fucking cool. The sound effect it makes is cool. The expanding <laughs> bit is fucking cool. And there is nothing not awesome about every time he uses it, especially because he uses it as like a gag prop, like 25-30% more than he ever uses it to fight anybody. It's like, hey, look in the end and shake it. Or like, oh, it's like a phone. Like he uses it for everything (laughs) but a weapon way more than he does to actually hit people with it. It's like a goddamn like 
I don't know. It's it, it's like a, a gag gift. But they call him Minbari Fighting Pike. That is not a pike. No. I'm I'm going to have to uh, try to get a clean clean take off the uh, off the show audio of the sound effect of that thing. It's so good. It's a really great piece of audio foley. I think that's what they call it foley, right? Uh, the sound that they have it make because it's real distinctive. And you always know what it means. And it's always a fun moment there. You're like, oh, Mark is going to hit somebody. And then sometimes he does. And sometimes he does something stupid. But either way, it's always a good <laughs> a good cue that the show is about to do something fun. Sheridan uh, in the command room introduces Marcus to Avadova, who is already aware of what the Rangers are, saving us on glorious exposition time. Marcus explains that Zagros 7, a Drazi colony as well as a ranger training station, has been boxed in by a Centauri minefield in their new expansion campaign, leaving the ranger camp in dire straits. Marcus wants their help in letting the rangers escape, but the conspiracy of light lacks a warship to... But wait, they might have something. Sheridan heads off with Ivanova. He believes they need to go on the offensive, and he orders Ivanova to fire up a shuttle. Morden and Londo meet in Londo's quarters, and they carve up the galaxy between them with a laser pointer. Londo agrees, but Morden does make an exception. A single planet that Morden has asked Rifa to secure, which he will take custody of. Zagro 7. The conspiracy jumps out of hyperspace, where they are greeted by a ship. The White Star. She's Sheridan's to command. It is a combination of Minbari and Vorlon technology. It is also crewed entirely from the religious cast of the Minbari. Sheridan jumps up into captain mode and orders a course set for Zagro 7. Back on the station, Indawi has not been having much luck, and he makes an unofficial visit to Jakar. He shows Jakar the ship, and Jakar shows him a shadow vessel from the Book of Jaquan. He explains the shadows set up a base in their world a thousand years ago and had mysteriously vanished since. Back on the White Star, Ivanova questions how Marcus got into the Rangers. Marcus lost his brother and joined the Rangers in his memory. As the White Star comes out of hyperspace, they fire on the minefield, carving an opening, but a shadow vessel jumps in. Sheridan says they need to finish what they started and proceed to create an opening through the minefield to let the rangers escape. They recognize that the shadow ship missed its opening shots. It's trying to either board them or get them to run away so they can follow them back to their base. Sheridan orders them through the jump gate with the shadow ship in close pursuit. Delette says this is folly, but Sheridan believes they can find something. So Sheridan asks Ivanova about the possibility of opening a jump point while in an active jump gate. Ivanova says it's suicide. The blast would be so powerful that it was nicknamed the Bonehead Maneuver by Earth scientists. Sheridan, after consulting Lanier and Ivanova, declares YOLO and heads to the Markap <laughs> jump gate, figuring, hell, no one else is using it. They exit hyperspace and successfully pull off the maneuver as they exit through the Markap jump gate and destroy the shadow vessel. Once the crew returns to B5, Indawi is there to meet him. Delenn covers by lying and saying that they're helping to tow a Minbari diplomatic shuttle that was damaged. Sure, yeah, people believe that. And Dawi leaves the station and returns to Earth to deliver his report. The woman he delivers the report to has a next visitor, Morden, who is there with a psychop, and the three of them go over the report, who decide to use this as a way to speed up the program back home. Back on the station... The conspiracy meets with Marcus included. Sheridan declares that they are creating a war council to meet every other week to share information and plan. And also run their D&D &D game. 
It's a good table for that. Okay, it I want to talk about the table. That's like that's the first thing I want to talk about actually, because I actually really find this table like the table and the chairs. So, for those of you who do not have this immediately on hand, it is a rectangular section with two separated semicircles. The chairs are just like metal. They're they're like metal like restaurant chairs. They're like it's patio li- chairs. Yeah, they're patio chairs. What this is. This is just the seating arrangement of some place you would go to brunch for. And this is just, the, this is their big conference room. It really does look like they scavenged this from the, like, Wolfgang space pucks that shut down and nobody <laughs> picked up any, the, the and they picked it up from, like, the closing sale and they, like, spray painted over the logo and stuck it in a, in the conference room. And that's why it's like all trendy and the chairs are uncomfortable because it looks good, but it's uncomfortable to sit at so that you won't be sitting there all day drinking overpriced Tom Collins and they can, you know, now they've got this dumb table, but you can't roll dice on it because the dice will fall right fucking through it. Right. And I don't know. It's a, it's a silly table. I, I obviously agree with you. what it is, is that, is that they're, they're playing a dice game, obviously, or everybody's got like a dice roller on their phones. Mm. Yeah. Or, or they have a dice tray that they pass around. <laughs> Could be. Uh, Could be. But yeah, I mean, overall, I, this table is okay. Let's, let's, uh, we got a lot of this episode. Uh, we got, we've got two new cast members. Yeah. The first is the less attractive of the two, the white star. <laughs> okay uh i have a very important question your notes here justin say the white star absolutely fucks oh no that's an auto one okay no well, no 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 well somebody said the white somebody star fucks, said that and yeah. i i agree i think that's accurate but I, my question for justin does it fuck harder than an x-wing no where does it where does it rate on the scale of star wars snub fighters is it Above it's not the a fighter, so it doesn't like, so it doesn't count. Well, obviously. I don't care. I'm but saying, this in terms like, of like pipe layage, where are we? Where are we ranking the White Star here? Um, God, I'll put that on like it's it's on like U wing tier, where it is a very cool design. It does not hold like the apple of my eye. <laughs> I'll take that. I I personally I have a model of a U wing right there, so I will take that. I think yeah, the U-wing it's like it's it's slaps, a very cool so. design. It look like they mentioned in the episode, it looks like it, it doesn't particularly look like a Minbari ship. It looks different enough. Yeah, like, it looks it looks different enough for plausible deniability. The whole the whole thing of like nobody could tell that this is a Minbari ship is like <laughs> some horse <horrible. laughs> nonsense. And it looks very different from the cruisers we've seen. Yeah, but it's got it's got a similar color scheme. It's got um, the same like weird aspens. So let me put it this way: it look it looks like a Minbari ship the way any ship on like Macross or Robotech looks like a Tomcat. Like, I mean, they look different, but they don't look that different. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's to Minbari ships what the defiant is to like starfleet ships yeah that's that's valid like they're both like they're like they're 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 both like sleek sort of like aggressive designs compared to like the previous ships we've seen of those where they're like big sort of like sprawling things the big space fish yes 
how much do you think the Defiant crawled up JMS's <laughs> ass when it showed up? Oh my up? god, he must have hated it. Because the oh. Defiant, the Defiant is like the DS White Star. Yes. Yeah, and it's and you know what? It can cloak too. <laughs> he must have hated god. that. God, oh man, that's so funny! That's so funny. They both appear in the first episode of their season threes as well. Oh my god, <laughs> that's so fucking funny. The the writers of DS Nine had to have done that on purpose. I hope they did. I mean, they they may not have. I don't think. I think JMS is that petty, but I don't think that like the DS. Well, I don't know who writes for DS Nine in season three. The the DS Nine episode where they introduced the fight came out like two years before this episode so oh so it, the the defiant predates the white star yes well all right well then maybe maybe uh he's the he's the petty motherfucker and it's a it's a cool design and like they go into some stuff of like oh yeah this is way different and way advanced because it's like oh yeah no because our uh like the centauri like have engines that operate off of gravitational principles oh yeah we just we have artificial gravity fuck you yeah, 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 and it's, it's partially it's alive too. Like the the hull of the ship kind of does a little bit of bloobity blabity shifty stuff. My favorite part is it's so, got the so uh, less pixelated than the Vorlon ship. Yes, slightly. Uh, my favorite part is it's got the Gray Council CGI screen, like Curtain. curtain oh, screen yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, and and is. Sheridan's face when that comes down is yeah. like. <laughs> I haven't seen that expression on his face since we saw Delenn in the council chambers in season yeah. two, episode two. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, okay, let's let let's give Justin a little room here to get misty about the other new cast member. I'm gonna save this for a later episode, but I just want to say, that, like, Marcus, baby. He's he's so good. And yeah, we don't get a ton of characterization from him, like apart from like why he joins the Rangers. And I I love that I mean they're they're really setting up parallels between him and Ivanova. I love the two of them together. Uh-huh. And and the the fact that kind of they, they both, you know, joined an organization to finish what a sibling started. Mm-hmm. Is is a nice little parallel. I think, and I think it's the parallels between them that make Ivanova like hate him just a little bit, but like, but like not in a <laughs> I actually hate you way, in a like fanfic I hate you way. Yeah. The w- one of my favorite pieces of this, a nice little reminder, is the that they use the Markab jump gate, mm-hmm. which Sheridan says explicitly that he he chooses because you know it's defunct at this point the markab are dead and that um he doesn't like that people are going in and looting the planet yeah it's a nice touch i can't fathom somebody trying to jump onto this show in season three but if you were (laughs) it would be a really nice introduction to everything you need to know about john sheridan right there Mm-hmm. It is yeah. principled. It is the right kind of angry. It's he does his gesture, his little like give a command and point at the same time. Um, <laughs> he, yeah, it's everything. And then it also like connects back to old episodes. Like it's it's 
everything that that like they want to be doing with with Sheridan right there in that one moment. It's real nicely done. I do want to raise one thing about Marcus that uh, I feel Justin was somewhat neglectful in not mentioning, and that is that Marcus has by a wide margin the best hair on Babylon Five. Oh yes. It is like shampoo commercial good. Yeah, uh, that's what I actually put in my notes that he is Revlon hair sweep over it uh, because he has that like. And only only Ivanova is up there with him in the in the really good hair territory. She yeah. also has extremely good hair. Yes, comma, but Ivanova never deploys it. Marcus is swinging those locks around like a <laughs> fucking nunchuck. Just out there for days. So, just saying. although there there is the Ivanova sex dance in which she does deploy her hair. Yeah, and yeah. it's great there. And there's an argument to be made: like, is it more deadly if it's rarely deployed or if it's out there all the time? I just happen to be in the, you know, Marcus is a deadly weapon category. So yes, he he is very good. Yeah, I like at the end when David and Dolly. Is that right, David? Yeah, Bob, Frank, and Dowie? I don't remember. Uh, he's like, he goes, he, he is he back on Earth or he's calling into Earth? And he's, he's like, it's a whole bunch of hook'em. Like, it's a bunch of crazy people out there. <laughs> like, he's completely, <laughs> literally, Jakar is like, that's a shadow ship. See, it was a thousand years. Jakar just full on, full on Cassandra's him right there. And he goes back to Earth. And he's just like, it's a bunch of crazy folk out there. There's something in the water. And and I mean, then he I leaves. Mean, he, was, he was primed by Londo's fever dream. Yeah. And he gets back to Earth and he's like, yeah, they're all crazy out there. I didn't find anything. And he leaves the room and then you hear sh- you hear Morden's voice and the Psycops are all like, we can use this to scare people. And you're just like, well, Earth is fucked. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. It's a real... It's a real downer closer because you're just like, well, they're screwed. Cool. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I thought was really interesting here is the Delenn characterization is really interesting because she's weirdly fatalistic when they're facing off against the shadow ship. Yeah. But I, she does not believe that there's any way to succeed. Like she's like, this is it. Like we're toast. Yeah, I saw your note there. I I read it a different way. Uh, okay. I agree with you that, like, I, I agree with that she's, like, she thinks they're fucked. But yeah. I didn't really read it, like, fatalistic so much as, like, I sort of viewed it like a Knight Templar who suddenly rolls up to a battlefield and a literal demon is out on the field. And he's just like, well, I'm fucked. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a demon. Like, this is... This is a woman who has spent her whole life, has thrown herself into this prophecy and really has like put herself into this river of, of momentous events and this, which is religious. She views herself in a context of like, this is a religious event, like a great war and these great events. And there's a shadow ship, which the closest parallel for us would literally be like seeing a demon rolling through space on a motorcycle, you know? So for her, I mean, it's got to feel like that's the end times, man. Like, 
Yeah. Shit's over. We're not prepared at all. We've got, you know, one ship. So I think it's not so much fatalism as just, I think she is just shocked down to like the core of her being to see the enemy right there. And it's just, she has been prepared by her religious training to believe that that's, you can't win there. Like, that's why we do this. Well, and that's that's one of the reasons why I feel like this episode is actually really important with this little subplot. I guess not little subplot, but big subplot. Mm -hmm. uh, That it's showing right off the bat that, you know, it might take being clever, but these things can be defeated. Yeah, agreed. Well, and I think not just, not just they can be defeated, but I also think it's important to show that there's a reason why Sheridan is necessary. Yeah. That's what I took from this episode. He has that kind of like bonkers off the wall (laughs) thinking that- (laughs) Those fucking wacky humans. Where it's like, you know, okay, well, we're totally screwed. So what if we blow up a jump gate with the shadow ship inside it? Yeah. Yeah. What if we did that? Sheridan has the ability that like, he he has a unique ability to think laterally. I think it's a really yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I think it's the the other thing that's interesting with Sheridan here is it can't be a coincidence that the ship is named the White Star when mm-hmm. the ship that he destroyed was the Black Star. Yeah, I like I really like that about it personally. Yeah. I think that's a nice touch yeah. that they're like So I have a couple things that I I sort of want to just like touch on. Uh, on this episode, adding on to the shadow plotline of this episode, Lanier, after they blow up a jump gate, um, <laughs> is in shock, and uh, Deled goes over to him to ask if he's okay. And Lanier's reaction is to suggest a revisal of the Temple Instructional Program to <laughs> yeah. suggest that this might be something they need to prepare people for. He's a good boy. We, if we're going to be friendly with the humans, we have to be prepared for that to rec- for us to be able to recognize that they are fucking insane. <laughs> yeah, he's he's so good. Yeah, I really like that scene. He and he he really sells the like flabber the fuck gasted expression on his face. Just like he honest to god looks like he's just been slapped full in the face with an existential experience. It's real good acting on his part. He has really good acting as well when Sheridan proposes the maneuver they end up using where Sheridan is like, well, has, is the ship fast enough? And Lanier is like, I don't fucking know. He's like, I'm a diplomatic aide. Why are you expecting me to calculate this on the fly in my head? Yeah. Sheridan's like, yeah, good enough. I also like the point where they they calls it the bonehead maneuver, and I can't remember who says it, but someone goes, "No offense," (laughs) to Lanier, which is which is, and it's funny because presumably it's it's not named after Mimbari boneheads. No, because it's it's just it's a figure of speech, but it like, but it's one of those things that could come across as it's it's a nice little bit. Yeah, it's just a funny bit. It's a good. Season three so good. I'm so glad we're at season three because it's just yeah. it's just really good. And speaking of season three, we've got a new se- we've got a new uh, credit sequence, which slaps yes. real hard. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, the, the the music is much more uh, frenetic. We'll say. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Like dun 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 dun. 
Something that uh, Londo uses in his scene with Morden, even as Londo is trying to like pull himself out to save his own skin, he refers to the Centauri's manifest destiny across the stars. Yep. Yeah. Yikes. Ooh. That's a phrase. Not a good one either. No. That sure um, is a choice that they made. Yeah, yeah. He, the writer, I guess JMS, definitely did not include that phrase by accident. Yeah, and from, from here on out, every episode is written by JMS until we hit a couple of episodes in season five. That's bananas. Yeah. He had to have like lived at work for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Oh, and you, you have a good note about Garibaldi, too. I disagree with this note, but please go on. Yeah, no, there's a whole thing where, like, Indawi is, like, trying to, like, figure out where Sharon and Ivanova went. And Garibaldi has this whole thing about how it's need to know so he doesn't know. Because, and he just basically, he runs around Indawi with some doublespeak and just verbal gymnastics. I think it's funny. Yeah. And it's dumb. <laughs> I I really hate that scene because it feels like any rational government aide or diplomat would be like, do you think I'm a fucking idiot? You know what I mean? It feels just like smarmy Garibaldi. And I don't know. It's always irritated me since like my very first viewing of this show. The, the, the thing that I think, like, sort of saves it is, like, that, like, Indavi is like, and you're not going to tell me, and you're not going to tell anybody that I'm going to go see Jakar, even though I have specific instructions for Earth not to. And he's like, I don't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think that's the thing that saves it, maybe, in my head. That's that's valid. I, I also feel like it's in character for Garibaldi to rattle off that, like, stream of nonsense. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that's fair. I just want to shout out uh, Indawi's actor, Tucker Smallwood. Uh, he he is still active in Hollywood today. He's been like TV for like 51 years. Damn. This is a really solid performance from him too. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of the actor of the week guests, he, he does a really solid job. Yeah, he plays a pretty good suit. Yeah, it's just like, it's a it's a good performance. And I there there's no like, standout guest stars that have like oh he, he he hasn't been in anything you like really recognize him as but just like in our tradition of just like shouting out like random folks who have been in hollywood forever yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no i i like that we have that tradition of of shouting out the hard-working people in it i i appreciate that i think that's good with our season opener we went we went a little long on that but that's uh, we had a lot to talk about. I think there's probably some stuff that will be cut, too. <laughs> there's some stuff that should rightly be cut. <laughs> uh, all right, Anna. That would be me. All right, take us away. Yeah, so our second episode here is Season 3, Episode 2, Convictions, written by GMS and directed by Micah Vehar. So this one starts out with Ivanova relaying what she thinks is a crank call to Garibaldi. Somebody sent anonymous messages to CNC, giving a countdown to chaos. Since chaos is a fact of everyday life on the station, uh, neither of them really think much of it until there's an explosion in Down Below. Garibaldi and his team investigate and determine that it was a bomb and start trying to find the culprit. 
Meanwhile, our new visitors of the week turn out to be a group of Trappist monks. Ivanova deals with their customs paperwork and learns that they intend to stay here on the station to facilitate learning about alien religions. Ivanova is pretty skeptical about their plans at first, but is eventually warmed over and grants them permission to move onto the station. The Bamians continue with the next striking in customs as Delenn and Londo arrive on the station. Lanier hauls both ambassadors to safety, but ends up trapped under falling debris behind a pressure door and among a bunch of flames. It's bad news. Yeah. In, in MedLab later, we find out that he has survived, thank God, uh, <laughs> but he is in a coma. Londo sim- seems to be genuinely moved by Lanier's actions and sits by the Mimbari's bedside uh, talking and telling jokes since he's heard that talking to people in comas can help them recover. And this is the only way that he can see to help with the situation and, you know, maybe pay Lanier back for saving him. By this point, the B-5 staff have determined that the bombs aren't targeting station infrastructure. They are targeting people. Uh, And as advertised, have the apparent goal of spreading terror and chaos. Security has also traced the bomb materials and learned about a series of very similar bombings on Proxima 3. Sheridan suggests that video footage of the explosions be checked for someone watching the scene um, and gloating. Garibaldi is skeptical about this because of the, um, he views it as not feasible, uh, having to go over so much video content. But Ivanova has a plan. She realizes that the monks, who are highly trained in computer science and engineering, um, as well as patient and observant, are the perfect resource to call on for this task, and the monks happily set to work. Meanwhile, the bombings have continued, and the latest one has resulted in Londo and Jakar being trapped in a transport tube together. (laughs) Although this seems like a situation filled with possibilities for fanfic in a number of different genres, Jakar himself seems to find the situation hilarious. He gets to watch Londo die without having to murder him himself, uh, and thus face the consequences for his people of 500 Narns being killed. Londo tries to convince him to help with an escape plan, but Jakar just sits in the corner being a troll and cackling to himself. It's great. Yeah, it's extremely good. Uh, the, the monks are successful in identifying somebody who is at all of the bombings. And a cross-reference between that and uh, that, that face and Proxima 3 identifies the bomber. Sheridan and a security team go to apprehend him, but find out that he was, in fact, expecting them. The bomber has another bomb rigged to take out the whole station and is holding the dead man switch. He demands to speak to Sheridan alone, so John slaps his trusty link on his ass and heads in. <laughs> uh, Garibaldi will keep the comm signal open to listen for clues and tell CNC not to page the captain for any reason. There's got to be a way you could put that on, like, send only, right? <sighs> Yeah. It's a command com like, but I guess one nobody's ever heard of fucking silent mode in 1995. I mean, there are so many problems with the links, okay? Like, why can't they put it on silent mode so that when he sits down, it doesn't beep? 
Why is the why are the command why are the communication devices used exclusively by the command staff incapable of private communication? <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing that one out there. Yeah. Crowded bar. A lot of questions. Captain, captain, someone's been assassinated. There's a bomb on the station. <laughs> Just shouting it into a crowded bar. Yeah, that that's a that's a thing in general that broadly like people don't understand that sound carries and that's something they will talk about with the voices of authority <laughs> but anyway there's a lot we could talk about there but as sheridan is trying to get the bomber to stand down he gives a hint indicating that the bomb is on the fusion reactor garibaldi then sends a maintenance team to find and remove it and a maintenance bot starts to carry it away from the station. And this is just in time, uh, because the, the bomber makes Sheridan sit down, and Sheridan sits on his link, which then beeps. Then the bomber panics, and the two tussle. The bomber then releases the dead man switch, but thankfully, no boom today. Uh, and security apprehends him. In the episode wrap-up, Lanier wakes and indicates that he was aware of Londo talking to him, but is upset that he saved someone who thinks that genocide is cool. Londo and Jakar are finally rescued, leaving Londo very relieved and Jakar very disappointed. There, you see. <laughs> I'm going to live. So that's what said. Well... It's an imperfect universe. Bastard. Monster. Fanatic. Murderer. You are insane! And that is why we'll win. I'll be the ambassador to Babylon 5, they say. It'll be an easy assignment. Oh, I hate my life. So do I. Shut up! Then that's that's the episode. Let's talk about the elevator. Just that's yeah. where we're yeah. going. That's where we've got to start. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, Jakar's glee at getting to watch Londo die is so good. Jakar, this Jakar has not really been allowed to be his vindictive self since like the top half of season one. And this is like old school, like, just let me punch him in the throat, Jakar. Um, <laughs> my favorite part is when Londo is like pounding on the walls, like, help us. Like, Justin can do the, the Londo voice. And then in the background, you see Jakar just like sprawled out comfy, like, help us. And then just laughs at himself. <laughs> it's like, put him down. <laughs> it's just, it's so fucking funny. J uh, Jakar is just the best part. The best part of that, though, is Lando. In, in, I'm going to paraphrase this, but he's going to say, "Aren't you going to help me? Uh, are, aren't you going to help us get out of here?" And Jakar's response is the three greatest words of, in the history of this show, as the humans say, "Up yours, die." <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the it's whole scene. So good. Is it's really great. It's a scene that with a lesser pair of actors would have been fine, but 
Andreas Katsalas is so fucking good in this scene. And Peter Jurassic is just sells his frustrated fury so well. And the two of them are so good together. They have such good bantery chemistry. Yeah. Like there's nothing not great about this scene. Um, I I just (laughs) love it. Like, like Jakar singing the fishy song. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Not many fishies left in the sea. Not many fishies and just Londo and me. Not many fishies left in the sea. Not many fishies. Just Londo and me. Not many fishies left in the sea. Not many fishies. Just Lando and <laughs> <laughs> And there's like the first part of it where like Lando's just woken up from his um his uh long enough that he has a concussion on consciousness and he's most and he's asking Jakar questions about the situation and most of it's just Jakar just like like being a smug little ass just like nodding shaking his head just like just like not even talking to London yeah and well well cackling well cackling yeah yeah and he does have a serious moment where he's like he he says you know oh I'm not going to do anything to you ambassador because if I do then you know you'll kill 500 yards I just have to watch you die like yeah because Londo is like well if you want to see me die then just fucking kill me yeah, and he's like, nope, don't have to. Just get to watch you suffocate, motherfucker. It's, it's great. Whew, it's real good. My other favorite part of this episode is uh, the monks. Oh, they're so good. I, I love them. I love Brother Theo. I think as a recent attempter of facial hair, for one thing, I feel like his beard is real good. Uh, it's real it's on majestic. point. It's majestic. It is. That's a great word for it. It's majestic. It's extremely tight. So A plus there. But also he walks this really thin line between like troll and Zen that I think is real hard to do without being like annoying. But he never comes across as annoying. He feels like Sinclair in a lot of ways. Yeah. That's a good comparison. Because I I feel like Sinclair is a troll in a lot of the same ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's in a way that a lot of, like, learned learned priests who are in a position of authority and are, like, not mean about it, but are still trolls are trolls. Um, Yeah. It's a very Catholic thing I've encountered. Um, I I do want to, like, go on a thing here of, like, the brotherhood of of brother theos um are their trappist monks who are actually from like the the abbey that they are referenced is new mallory which is a real monastery in dubuque iowa yeah they're they're a real thing yeah they're a evolution of a thing that exists now that's cool it's a really just neat little thing of just like like drawing something. It's very interesting that it's like it's that specific thing, especially because like JMS is from Southern California, uh, which has like 
a lot of storied monasteries, though I could see probably why he wouldn't. Like, I could see why you wouldn't, because the, the California missions have a very bad colonialist history. Um, Dubuque, Iowa probably does not have as fraught of a Catholic <laughs> yeah. uh, history. I was going to say, California's relationship with its religious institutional history is real different. Like, yeah. they're fun ruins you build a model of in grade school, and then that's it. You don't go into what those were for. And, uh, Until much later, yeah. but they're not like... Yeah. yeah it's a different it's a different thing also um like compared to the drowsy monks we see at the start of the episode where um <laughs> garibaldi is earning himself a cultural sensitivity hr course yeah again the drowsy are there to see a place that was touched by Drosala, and brother theo's congregation is not there because an angel appeared um they are there because they are doing decades long they're like they've been approved for a decades long research project yeah it, it just happens to be the two arrive on the station at the same time but it's like it's a very interesting like synchronicity like it's a very interesting research project that they're doing yeah and like apparently this is like this is a thing that the catholic church has signed off on because like they mentioned that archbishop like that archbishop has signed off on this and has like they have their full support of rome so and this is this is something that there is a um, thread about religion in Babylon Five that uh, I posted from the Babpod Twitter account a while back, and Jude I think also retweeted, which is about that Babylon Five compared to other sci-fi shows of the future, specifically religion does not die off when we meet aliens and when we reach the stars; it evolves to sort of redefine that. And uh, Brother Theo talks about how the Catholic Church is dealing with that, of like, you know, that we, like, that their thing is like, well, God, why is God human? Why God could have appeared to aliens in other forms. Yeah. yeah. Looking for and, the, the, what is it, the the, bil- the four billion names of God or something like that, he calls it. Yeah. And I love that idea. I love that they have this depiction that thread was really great. I love that thread that, and the depiction of religion in B5 is all over the map. Sometimes it's real positive. Sometimes it's real negative. And I love that brother Theo and his group are super kind and positive and they're not there to convert anybody. They're not there to proselytize. They're literally just there to learn. And that's, that's fucking cool. And and to be a straight man in a later episode in one of my favorite episodes that we're going to get to in a, in a couple in, in a couple weeks or down the line a little bit that Justin hasn't seen yet. I I honestly think that like it's also a depiction I think of like members of like the Catholic Church that we don't usually get to see a lot in media. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. because like I like compared to like priests or missionaries or something like monks are their own thing they're like like they're not there to proselytize they're there to study and learn and i think that's a it's it's a really interesting diversions hat from how we usually see religious figures especially christian 
authority figures portrayed. Yeah. One of my favorite things about this episode as well is with the monks, there's a little interesting diegetic sort of thing where they're challenging the audience's assumptions about them through Ivanova. That we have the scene where Ivanova is kind of processing their paperwork and is, you know, first questioning like, you know, so like, why are you coming here? We don't want you to be proselytizing to people like, you know, you shouldn't, you know, we don't want you to be like harassing the ambassadors. Theo like goes through each of those assumptions, which are probably, you know, I think reasonable assumptions for the audience to have at that moment. Ivanova makes a nice little conduit for audience perceptions there. Yeah. In that little interaction, there's also the thing where, you know, Theo says, you know, the the monks that were chosen for this particular project are all, you know, highly sought after experts in, you know, a number of fields. And Ivanova's like, well, why the fuck are they here then? And yeah. Theo's like, because they believe. Yeah, it's a real good one. Um, and that that idea that that you know the idea that science and religion can coexist is nice. Yeah. In our next recording, we are going to be discussing something that we will even get into further. With we're going to be covering the uh, one of the best episodes of the season or in the entire series, passing through Gethsemane, where we will get to talk through a lot more about uh religion in babylon 5 yeah yep uh i would love to talk about londo for a few minutes please yeah let's talk about londo because this is one of the few instances at especially recently where we see him be decent like that we see that there are some shreds of decency in his soul and i feel like scenes like what we have with him and Lanier are really necessary because they help amplify us hating him the rest of the time. Yeah. That's the thing about Londo. And I think it comes down heavily on scenes like this, as you point out, and Peter Jurassic who plays Londo so perfectly. Oh, he's so, he's so good. He swings him so nicely between put him behind a podium in a crowd in a brown uniform and broken and wounded and just, you know, just a broken, wounded man that just wants to find someplace to retire. Like, really nicely plays that line so you never get content with one depiction. You're always remembering the other one. Yeah. So you always have both in mind. Yeah, I really like that about Londo as a character because it would be so easy for him to be a kind of one-note villain. Yeah, he could easily have been a caricature, for sure. And it makes him, like in in the next episode we'll talk about, where Londo is at perhaps his most hated. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, he he has one of his like most awful moments. It makes it makes moments like that like hit so much harder because it's like but this is, you know, you know that he could be decent. Like he's the guy who sat by Lanier's bedside for hours telling light bulb jokes. Yeah. In the hopes that it would 
help his i mean not even friend like like somebody who he would like to perhaps be considered a friend because he doesn't have any friends yeah i think it's 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 a it's a refinement of the quantum asshole state yeah because i think it's like we we get the like it's between the conversation we see with him trying to like pull away from morden in the first episode and what we get with him here there it's almost like you're it's almost like you're getting tossed a lifeline to think that londo's trying to pull his shit together yeah yeah i think the show always wants to give you hope that Londo is a good person, but it never wants to let you forget that no matter how good of a person he might be to individuals, he is also fundamentally a servant of a corrupt, awful republic. And empire. a happy servant of that. And a hap- Yeah, a happy servant. And we're, we'll talk about that a lot in the next it's episode. it's not just it's not just like veer who is you know that's the system he's in he's trying to make things better from within the system as much as he can yeah this is like he's he's actively perpetuating it there is a yeah. cog londo is a servant but not even a servant v- londo is like a i don't even know what the word is but yeah there's definitely a difference in the way that they serve their empire. Veer is somebody who is like, he has a job and he's doing it. But Londo is in fact making policy decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And Veer and Veer is at least like trying to do the decent thing wherever possible. Not, I mean, he's still part of a awful system, but yeah, poor Veer. Uh, I will, I will note that this is not the first time we've had link on the ass as a plot point. <laughs> no, it's not. What was the first time? It it was Sinclair when he was first. It was what when he was first talking to Sakai, I believe, because she mentions that your pants are talking to you. Oh right! Oh gosh! Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> on a note on the light bulb joke, that was apparently scraped off of a fan site, um, and I think I remember that fan site, which had dozens of similar light bulb and like you know why did the vorlon cross the road yeah um it was like it was like one of those joke books you would find at a like fourth grade at like a in a grade school bathroom it was all (laughs) like these just completely facile jokes but all about like b5 stuff they were great it's fantastic all right give us a clean take how many Sindari does it take to screw in the light bulb? One. But in the great days of the old Sindari Republic, hundreds of servants would change thousands of light bulbs at the slightest whim. Oh, fuck, that's good. <laughs> wow. Your Londo's getting oh. tremendously good. That's amazing. Good job. Uh, I don't, I mean, I feel like we have to wrap it up on that. I don't know how we can top, top that. I'm just like it was like as soon as I'm like doing that I'm like I'm gonna have to record that. Yeah, I think I think there is one last thing that we should potentially talk about on here, which is we haven't talked about the villain for this episode at all, the bomber. Oh, I thought you were gonna talk about the guy bothering Lanier. Oh yeah, that's the real villain. (laughs) I mean, Paul, because Um, 
And we've all been Lanier. Uh, as Lanier sitting in customs. We've all been <laughs> Lanier. We've all had that moment. So I had a I had a moment last night where like the scene with Lanier by the way, by the way, the 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 person who is playing the asshole pestering him is John C. Flynn, who is the head of photography for the show. Oh, That's beautiful. really funny. So when I was watching that scene last night, I had the thought that like there has to be a German word for it. But I was feeling <laughs> the feeling of missing something, which in this case was just the annoyances of public transit and waiting places and people being annoying. The feeling of missing something that is inconvenient just for the normalcy it provides. And that is my feeling about public transport right now. Yeah. I love that scene, but especially after the guy leaves. Lanier looks up and he was like, uh, he says something like, uh, I will do penance later or something like that. Yep. That's the line. The villain is, uh, I mean, I don't know. He, 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 he chews the scenery just fine. Uh, what I like about him is he, he, he definitely looks like a mad bomber. He's got like that twitchy energy and they give him those like glasses that you like pull off your face when you're a crazy person. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the glasses that no sane person would wear because they like don't stay on your face. But like if you pull on one side, they like come off in a really dramatic fashion. I thought that was a, you know, interesting choice to make the villain here, make the bomber just like an entitled white dude. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there there's not really a lot to him beyond just like he is a dude who who lost everything. Yeah. And I mean, it's like. There's not really a lot to him. He fits the profile of a lot of similar dudes. And I don't think you need him to be anything special for this episode because it's not about him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I liked that he wasn't anything special. Like, he wasn't any, yeah. like, diabolical mastermind or anything. Yeah. He's just some chump with a bunch of spare parts. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was a good choice for how to construct that character. Yeah, I do want to pour one out here for the poor robot who gets sacrificed here. Yep. <laughs> we haven't seen many instances before of the Babylon Five maintenance bots, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna pour out another one for another mate bot next episode. Yeah, no, I actually like they, these are like really cute robots, and uh, they're they're like one of my favorite designs of the show. And the fact that just, like, the first two times we get, like, real close-ups on them, they just get ganked like bitches. They're, it's going to be, like, I, as, as a robot lover, this is this is a rough, this is a rough two episodes for me. Uh, yeah. They go out like chubs. They get, they get both sacrificed to, like, warheads. Oh, and, and as a kind of filmmaking note on this i think this is one of the episodes that we are watching in 2021 and i think that there's some stuff in this that we take for granted so for instance the scene where there's the fireball coming at londo and he dives into the elevator yeah that's a very that's a surprisingly complex shot like that required like a fair amount of like practical effects and CGI and mm-hmm. like compositing and stuff like that. Um, that would be a much simpler shot to put together now. Yeah. That's like yeah. a three times an episode on NCIS New Orleans, but 
back in the day on <laughs> Babylon 5, that was some hot shit. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a cool little five second bit. Yeah. I do have an actor note. Louis Turan, who plays Brother Theo, was the original actor for Drawl. As in he was the first, like... He was the original. He was the first draw. Really? Yeah. That's that's wonderful. That's that's a it's, delightful. It's the same like, same energy. Huh. Same energy. Yeah, for sure. But that's that's bananas. Ah, uh, hmm. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. All right, folks. That is all we have for today. So tune in next time. We are going to be covering a day in the strife, and we're going to be skipping ahead to a voices of authority because we want to leave that episode between them to uh its own standalone so until next time be seeing you the babylon project is an independent production all views expressed on the show are our own clips from the original show remain property of the original owner music information can be found in the show notes the rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.